It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is David Svi Kalman, and I'm a scholar-in-residence at Hartman. Today's episode of the podcast is about science fiction, and whenever I bring up science fiction in Jewish contexts, I feel like I need to apologize for bringing something trivial into a serious conversation. Science fiction, for a variety of reasons, is often put on the margins of what is considered literature. It's associated with children, it's associated with big Hollywood pictures, and its premises often seem like they're just about escapism. The truth of the matter, though, is that science fiction, and maybe we should expand that category and call it speculative fiction, actually matters quite a bit. It inspires people, it helps people think through complex ideas about the future, it's a compelling way to conduct thought experiments. You can draw a line between the people who watch Star Trek and Cosmos as kids and the people who end up becoming scientists later on in life, or who deal with ethics and the history of technology. There's even an argument that science fiction actually matters more than high literature. There's a book that I'm currently in love with called The Great Derangement by a novelist Amitav Ghosh, and he makes the argument in this book that literature which is most highly valued is actually the literature which is least capable of reflecting the kinds of radical changes that our society and the globe are currently experiencing. Because the twists and the turns of that literature are really nothing compared to real life. So, for example, good contemporary novels aren't supposed to be set in a world in which Miami is on the verge of being permanently flooded. So science fiction really matters. And in that context, I want to add one more thing, which is that Jewish science fiction matters too. The science fiction genre is maybe 200 years old, depending on how you count. And basically for the entire time, Judaism has had a kind of special relationship with the genre. Jews were involved in establishing early science fiction publications. Hugo Gernsback, who's the namesake for the Hugo Awards, which are basically the Emmys of science fiction, was Jewish. There were many Jews involved in writing early science fiction, not just in the United States. And Jews have also been a really important fan base for science fiction from the very beginning. That being said, very little science fiction is about Jews directly, although there are some notable exceptions. So what to make of it? What's the value of science fiction to Jewish conversations, to Jewish science fiction itself? In that context, I'm really excited to have on the show today, Lavi Tihar. Lavi is the author of many, many works. There's something to be written about science fiction authors and being extremely prolific. Many, many works of science fiction and fantasy, some of which involve Jewish characters or are set specifically in Israel. One of his novels, Osama, won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in the process of beating out both a Stephen King book and a George R.R. R. Martin novel that is part of the series that was adapted into Game of Thrones. There's more to say, but Lavi, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I mean, you bring up a bunch of great topics. And how long do we have? <laughs> well, it goes as long as we have. So let me start by asking you, many people early on in life who later on become writers decide that they want to be writers. But I'm curious how you came to science fiction as your kind of chosen genre. Oh, that's a good question. I have no idea. And I often actually wonder where writers come from at all, because the only conclusion I've ever come to is that writers come from nowhere. They come from everywhere. 
One of my Israeli writer friends is Shimon Adaf, who is, you know, very well known as a literary author and poet in Israel. He's a big science fiction fan. And we grew up in the complete opposite side of the Israeli spectrum. You know, I grew up on a kibbutz, on a little kibbutz in the north. He grew up, the son of Moroccan immigrants in the desert, essentially, in this little town called Sderot. And he was supposed to be a rabbi when he was growing up. And at the same time, we share the same books, the same culture, the same love for these obscure books that, as you're saying, no one really takes very seriously. And it's strange. I think the only way I can describe it is I guess some people have a weird take on the world. And then you search the books that have that same weird take and you just see the world a little bit differently than everyone else. Your novel, Central Station, is set in a future where Tel Aviv's major bus terminal, which is far too big and mostly empty right now, has become a spaceport of sorts. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to set your novel in that city? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating place, is the actual reason. The interesting thing is, we're talking about this very Israeli book, really, that's set in Israel, set in the Central Station area of Tel Aviv, that has all these obscure references as well to a bunch of Israeli literary works and science fiction works. And yet, you know, I saw someone write about it recently, some academic, and he said, you know, there's nothing Israeli about this guy's work, despite his success in America. And I think my brother always makes the point that you'll never be successful until you win a Nobel Prize or an Oscar, and then you've always been the pride and joy of Israel. I mean, Natalie Portman, you know, was born in Jerusalem, but she's got an Oscar, so she'll always be a chosen daughter. I'm not in that position yet, clearly. No, I was living there at the time, to be honest. I kind of came back to Israel in about 2010. I had this crazy idea of living there for a while. And I lived in Jaffa, which was even then beginning to be gentrified, but was still an interesting place to be. And I just got fascinated by the central bus station area, which firstly, the building itself is this monstrous creation that if you look at the original plans, was supposed to be some sort of utopian construction and turned into this absolute monster with its own nuclear fallout shelter. And at the same time, it's the area where all the African refugees were placed, who crossed into Israel. They were just dumped there, basically. And at the same time, you have all the economic migrants, the Thais, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, you know, all the people who came to work, some for many, many years. And it's a very poor area. And I thought it was a fascinating area. And it was a real commentary about the mix of cultures and the mix of people. And I thought that would be an interesting place to set a bunch of stories in or a novel. The thing was, I also knew no one in their right mind was ever going to publish this book. So I decided very consciously to treat it as sort of a mosaic novel. So I could write individual sections of the book and publish them separately in magazines or anthologies. So at least I would get something out of it. And to my surprise, once the book actually was finished, which took about six years to write on and off, once the book was finished and uh, we had a small publisher called Tachyon in San Francisco who took it on, it became relatively successful, which I can never understand. And, you know, people always complain that it's not really a book because it doesn't have a plot, by which they mean that it doesn't have an action-adventure plot that American science fiction has. It's essentially a literary take that it's just about small people. It's about weddings and funerals. It's a very Jewish book. And the other thing I wanted to do was kind of take it away from that idea of American science fiction, which is always about the individual, you know, the lone hero, and kind of write about what it's like to be 
Jewish or Chinese or Indian indeed, that concept of the extended family, where you're never alone because you're trapped in a web of obligations and familial relations and you have an aunt who's not really your aunt, but her grandmother was married to your grandfather's ex-wife at some point in the past and your blood relations ever since. And you have your messed up cousin who's always into trouble. You have that big, messy family. And that's really what I wanted to write about. So I was very happy that it was well received, but I was also very surprised that anyone read it at all. It sounds like what you're saying is that you are trying to explore these things which exist across many, many cultures, but you're exploring them through your own experiences, through your own time living in Jaffa in particular. And on that, I'm thinking about what it means for Jewish writers and Israeli writers to imagine the future of Judaism, the future of Israel. There's a term Afrofuturism, and I'm not going to do the definition justice because it's a complicated subject, but basically it's an aesthetic and also a kind of philosophy in which Africans and especially African-Americans look at the intersection of African culture and technology. Is there such a thing as Judeo-Futurism and are you a part of it? I think when you start off, you start off quite idealistic and you want to blaze a trail and lead the way and and show how things can be done. And then you realize no one really cares all that much and you just keep doing your own thing. I don't know if what I do has any influence on anyone or whether... Yeah, it's very tricky. I think what I'm attracted to is trying to do things that haven't been done before. And a novel like Central Station simply wasn't done before. And I went to China. We launched it in China before the pandemic, obviously. I mean, we could still travel. And I made the joke that I said, you know, this is the best science fiction novel set in Tel Aviv. And it's also the worst science fiction novel set in Tel Aviv because it's the only science fiction novel set in Tel Aviv. Whereas you have a hundred novels set in New York. I mean, if I never read a book about New York again, it would be too soon for me. So I try to do things that haven't been done before. I would love to see other people do it. And I know there is Jewish fantasy being written and that sort of thing. But but I still, to this day, I can't really find, even in my own work, I realized the other day, I couldn't find any Israeli set science fiction other than Central Station. And so I thought the only thing I can do is I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a new story in that setting to see what I can do with it. Now, why it's not being done, I don't necessarily know. You brought up the thing about American science fiction was so defined by Jewish writers. You know, Hugo Gernsback, who began life as Hugo Gernsbacher from Luxembourg, and he's, I think, the only Jew who ever came from Luxembourg. He really started not just science fiction, but he started fandom as we know it today. It was his invention, essentially. And we had Asimov, we had all these other guys, but they never wrote specifically Jewish characters or settings. And I think a lot of it was tied to the anti-Semitism, even the genteel anti-Semitism that was present. If you look at people like John W. Campbell, who was the most influential editor of the time in astounding science fiction, he was a horrible man. I had to read his letters recently for a book that I'm writing. You know, I had to research the golden age of science fiction quite a bit. And he was a horrible person. And they referred to Hugo Gernsback as Hugo the Rat. That was his nickname at the time, which is incredibly, you know, anyway you look at it, it's anti-Semitic. But it's interesting that there isn't, I mean, you get Jews popping up, but they're always a bit weird. I don't know if you remember the ending of the last book of Dune. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. 
it ends with the weird space juice show up. That's always really confused to me. The space juice show up and then the books end and there's never another June book. I think it died after that. It's the weirdest ending to a series. So I don't know. So what, all I can do is really try and write things that haven't been done. And if other people also choose to go and do that sort of stuff, that would be fantastic. Do you see your work as a kind of corrective then? Or is it just you looking for stories wherever they happen to be? Well, I mean, in a way, it is a corrective. I mean, it's nice to be able to point to an example of a science fiction novel set in Tel Aviv, for instance. But at the same time, you know, when I started writing, I was writing short stories, which is still my main, you know, I love short stories. And I think the best form for science fiction is the short story. So I was writing stories and I knew that my competition wasn't other Israeli writers. My competition was the thousands and thousands and thousands of American writers also writing short stories and submitting them to the same magazines. And you're talking about magazines that maybe get a thousand submissions a month and can publish one story. So I can't write about New York or Nebraska or Chattanooga. But what set me apart from all those other writers is that I could write about things they can't write about. And so I used that very consciously as that's the thing that sets me apart, that I can write authentically, I can write honestly about places that are very rarely explored or completely unknown in Anglophone literature. So there's still a lot in that. There's still a lot I can do when I keep exploring that with different works. Yeah, I mean, in that, I feel like your work is in some ways part of the same new wave of science fiction that you see in authors like N.K. Jemisin, who's a black woman who wrote the Broken Earth trilogy, which received a Hugo Award for each volume of the trilogy, which is unprecedented in the Hugo's history, and Nidhi Okafor, who received acclaim for her novella Binti, as a way of kind of having science fiction speak to cultures that previously the authors, even if they had been part of those cultures, didn't want to intrigue into the work. I actually want to go back to Rabbi and those Jews at the very end of Frank Herbert's Dune series, because when I was a kid and I read that, it was so striking to me that sometime impossibly far in the future, there are still recognizably, basically Orthodox Jews. And I feel like that speaks to a way in which Jews come across differently in science fiction when they appear than other religions do. I think Christianity, in a lot of the science fiction that I've read, doesn't do very well. There's a kind of conflation of Christianity with anti-rationalism, and because I think a lot of science fiction authors are interested in rationality and new possibilities, they don't do so well. And I think Islam, until recently, has been underrepresented in general. But Jews, they exist, at least. And I'm curious, first of all, why you think they show up that way, what you think that says about people's expectations for the future of Jewish people. Well, I mean, I think the problem with Jews... You know, that's a great way to start a conversation, isn't it? Yep, always wins. The problem with Jews, well, because it's not really one thing or another. It's not just a religion, because a lot of us are not particularly religious, but it's not just a genetic disposition. We're made up of different people, and we have very different levels of faith. And the only way you can really define Jews is as a tribe. You can become a member of a tribe, You're not really encouraged, but you can become a member. And, you know, and we all argue all the time. So it's a different concept. You know, Christianity is a religion. Ultimately, anyone can be a Christian. There's some good science fiction about Christianity in the future. But Jews are not just that, are they? So it's tricky. And also, I think because 
we might not be able to take it that seriously as a concept. The one example I have is I've had this idea for years of writing an entirely Jewish space opera universe. Imagine Star Wars, which is pretty Jewish anyway, but I mean, imagine just Jews. Everyone is Jewish and everything is defined by Jewish concept. And I wrote a story finally after years of saying I'm going to write this story. I think the concept was that the Weizmann Institute in Israel, they invent some sort of portal into another galaxy, another universe, and they quietly just go through it for like 5,000 years. And so this entire galactic milieu is settled by Jews who settle on various planets and obviously become half of them are fighting the other half. And, and then the alien life forms are called the treif. And there's a big argument about whether an alien can be in Jew. You know what I mean? It already sounds like a bad joke. And the only way I could do it is to treat it completely seriously as a sort of classical science fiction story, right? So people never got the story. People never got the joke. Because when you read the story on the surface level, it just reads like one of those old school action adventure science fiction stories with planets and spaceships. But every single line is packed with jokes. People never got it. They never got it. I mean... I had jokes. The spaceship was called the Vazmir. The military power it has is Av-9 cannons, the Tisha B'Av. You know, I thought it was very funny. No one ever got that. They never got any of the jokes. And then I read people reviewing the story, and then they're reviewing it very seriously. And they're saying, firstly, this isn't Jewish at all. It reads very Christian because it's all about a new beginning, a new Jerusalem, and all that Christian imagery, which, of course, this is a reinvention of Judaism but also kind of using it, saying this is actually about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, as they like to say, you know. I'm like, did no one did no one get it? It was my greatest failure as a writer, I think, to write something like this that I thought was actually quite clever <laughs> and just have it fall flat completely. So I think maybe we're just not ready for Jews in space just yet. You know? I mean, that's interesting, right? Because in some ways, a work like that is in conversation with other Jewish fantasies about having a land all of their own, which is something explored not just by, say, like Michael Shabon and talking about Jews in Alaska, but also thinking about Herzl and imagining Israel as a utopian Jewish state and writing a kind of fictional account of a utopian Jewish state. So I'm curious, for works like that, who you imagine yourself in conversation with? When I write science fiction, proper science fiction, it's in dialogue with a lot of the old classical American science fiction. Yes, a lot less with Israeli fiction, although I do reference whatever Israeli science fiction there was or find a reference in my work. One of my favorite being a couple of short stories from the 80s about sort of robots begging for parts in the streets of Jerusalem, which I'd used extensively as an image. I just loved that image. Say a little more. Say why you loved it. They just stuck with me when I read them years and years and years ago. You know, the robots in my stories tend to be the more Jewish characters, I guess. They're the ones who are still trying to find their way and find where they belong. And they're not quite one thing and they're not another. The whole idea of humanoid robots, they're not us, but what are they? So I think they fulfilled our role. But... Yeah, I don't know if I am. I don't know if there is much dialogue. I don't see anyone being in dialogue with me, if you see what I mean. So who would I be talking to? The other thing, if I go back to something you said in the introduction about how no one takes science fiction seriously, that's actually a bit of an issue because the work I do is actually quite political and it's quite serious. I wrote a book called Unholy Land, which is an alternate history about the Jewish state being founded in Uganda. 
And then it branches out into other alternative versions of Jewish states along different timelines. And I think it's a very good book, kind of an underrated book. <laughs> I don't know if anyone really read it because it was read as science fiction. And again, you know, I wrote a book called A Man Lies Dreaming, which is my big Holocaust novel, which is about Adolf Hitler as a private detective, that he fell from power and he escapes to London as a refugee and he becomes a private eye in the Philip Marlowe tradition, which I think is my favorite book probably. And it was not really, you know, I mean, okay, it's a hard sell to say to people, Adolf Hitler, private eye. But again, you could start it with the problem with Jews. But I have that problem that once you say genre, it's an issue because the other problem is the people who like genre, they don't want you to shove Hitler and Israel down their throat. They want the elves and the aliens, which is fair enough. And the people who do want to read about Israel and what do we do and the Holocaust, they don't want to hear about aliens and elves. It's a real problem that I'm not appealing to both. I'm appealing to neither at this point. So actually, my next book to come out next year is I kind of said, okay, look, I'm going to write about Israel. I'm going to write about the situation, the people, the history, the things I know, but I'm not going to do the weird stuff. I'm just going to take the weird stuff out for once and I'll see maybe doing it that way, you can be taken seriously because people don't have that crutch to lean on that says science fiction isn't important. Even though to me, if you look at Israeli fiction, and I've said that in the past, I find it completely dishonest because it's pretending that everything is fine. Everything is normal. Don't look that way. Don't look over there. Don't look behind the screen. You know, Amos Soz and all those writers, it's just normal life when there's horror behind every rock. And so I wanted to kind of sit down and write about the truth, the historical truth, and actually doing amazing research, you know, kind of uncovering things that I never even knew. It was a real education. But really just saying, can I do it without the weird stuff? Can you synopsize the book a little bit? The new book, well, it's literally, there's only two people who have read it. My agent and my publisher, both of whom are over the moon, thankfully, about it. It's a huge historical epic. It's set over 40 years of Israeli history, starting with a car bomb attack in 2004, traveling back in time to a murder investigation in 1974, working its way through the invasion of Lebanon in the 1980s, up to the Rabin assassination, and back to the 2000s. And it's science fiction? No, so this is a serious novel, darling. There's no mutants or maniacs, you know, there's no aliens or elves. This is a proper novel, which I object to personally. I think it's ridiculous to say that, but this is the reality that we're living in. So I'm excited about it. I think it's a huge book and every word of it is true. I did not make things up. In fact, every time that I thought I can never even make something up because it's too ridiculous, reality goes twice more ridiculous than I could ever imagine that it would be, which I think is quite appealing when you're writing about real stuff. It's always weirder than the stuff you would make up, which is kind of a running theme in the stuff I have written. Hi, my name is Michelle Biderstone, and I want to tell you about an exciting, groundbreaking curriculum we are launching at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism is based on four decades of the best Hartman scholarship on the foundational concepts of Judaism and Jewish life. 
This new four-volume curriculum explores the most compelling questions in Jewish thought and makes them accessible to all audiences. It's not a how-to Judaism 101 course, but instead serves as a complement for those looking to grapple with philosophical questions at the heart of Jewish tradition, specifically Jewish peoplehood, faith, ethics, and practice. To find out more on how you can bring foundations for a thoughtful Judaism to your community, please visit shalomhartman.org slash foundations. Going back a second to that notion of science fiction as a genre in which it's more acceptable to have catastrophes and truly radical or apocalyptic change take place, there's a kind of irony in that the same genre which allows for those kinds of changes is also a genre in which you can kind of play out real optimism a sense of real positive change. You know, in Central Station, for example, I think people who are thinking about the modern state of Israel and one-state solutions or two-state solutions often come away feeling a kind of despair of what exactly will happen and how it's possible to get out of the current predicament. And I think you've fast-forwarded beyond the present moment to a future where, yes, there are terrible things happening, there are good things that happen, but you imagine, yes, it is possible to have a kind of resolution there. And so I'm wondering if you imagine your vision for Israel's future as more optimistic or more pessimistic, or how you think about that far future. I actually messed up because I didn't realize this was an optimistic novel <laughs> when I wrote it. And not just optimistic in that sense, but in the technological sense. And I know people in Silicon Valley really liked the book because they were like, look, it's this great shiny future where machines work and we didn't destroy the earth and everything is great. And and I thought, oh my, that's terrible. I didn't mean to do that at all. <laughs> you know, this was just because I loved the toys. I wanted to play with the toys of golden age science fiction. And I kind of made that mistake. No, I think the solution in Central Station, I came up with the idea of a digital federation. So you literally have Israel and Palestine intertwined. So you can have one street that's under Palestinian control, one street is under Israeli control, and the machines kind of just move you from one to the other. And everything's fine. And the funny thing was, again, in the you can't make stuff up, is shortly after I wrote that, I saw someone was seriously proposing it as a viable solution. That was a short-lived movement, which had nothing to do with my book. It was just like an actual political proposal to have this digital federation. Yeah, I think being optimistic maybe is why people like Central Station, whereas a lot of my other stuff is about terrible people doing terrible things. This was about actually people could be pretty good. But that was completely accidental. <laughs> I promise never to do that again. And I actually now, because I've realized even I don't have science fiction stories set in Israel, like I said, we never really see beyond Central Station. I thought I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. So I'm writing this story at the moment that's exploring what's happening elsewhere beyond that. And one of the ideas I had, because one of the things I've been fascinated with for a long time was that Israel is actually one of the main places when the underthoughts lived. It was one of the first meeting points between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. And where I grew up was basically Neanderthal country. And they lived, I think there's a cave in the Carmel where the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens lived together and had children. And quite a few humans now have Neanderthal DNA, some amount of Neanderthal DNA. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if we brought back the Neanderthals and they lived in the Jezreel Valley? <laughs> That would be fun. That would be interesting. I'd like to explore. And how do they interact with Homo sapiens, which they're probably not incredibly fond of at this point, <laughs> because they've already wiped them out once. 
So, you know, there's plenty of life. One thing I'd like to do is, in an ideal world, I would have loved to write one short science fiction novel a year just to keep mapping things. And in fact, the next one will be coming out from Tachyon as well. It's a book called Neon, and it's set in the Red Sea on the Arabian Peninsula coast in this futuristic city. And again, kind of deals with the little people and the robots. It's kind of my big robot novel, and it's very short. So I'd love to do more of that stuff. I'd love to keep exploring this made-up future, future history, as they call it. So at the moment, you're kind of a trailblazer in this field of explicitly Jewish, explicitly Israeli science fiction writing. I'm curious what you hope the genre ends up looking like in 10, 20, 30 years. How do you hope that it develops, both in terms of its relationship to other kinds of Jewish literature, and then also in terms of the kinds of themes that you'd like to see? To be honest with you, I edit anthologies as well. I mean, one of the things I do is I've been editing and promoting, trying to promote international science fiction or speculative fiction, really, because to me there isn't much difference between science fiction and fantasy and horror and any of those fantastical genres. They're all under the same umbrella. And the science fiction doesn't strike you as being more Jewish than the other ones? No, not really. I think there's some interesting Jewish fantasy, whereas there's not so much Jewish science fiction. But there's definitely interesting Jewish fantasy. But, you know, I've been trying to edit anthologies. I've just released The Best of World SF Volume 1, which is this big hardcover anthology that collects writers from around the world. And one of the things that I would love to just see more of is, I guess, Israeli science fiction that is both Israeli and science fiction which I've been looking for. And you either get stuff like Shimon Adaf stuff, which is very literary, but too literary. And then you get the stuff that's too Israeli, but not really science fiction-y. And I'm really looking for something in between. I'd love to see some of that. I've been reading some Arab science fiction. I think that's really interesting. There's stuff like Gulf Futurism that's coming up. I've been looking at some Iraqi science fiction. There's been a Palestinian science fiction anthology or a couple of Palestinian science fiction anthologies recently. Which again, you know, look at the future and what possible futures there could be. And, you know, just in terms of Jewish science fiction, I think if anyone kind of went in and did that, I think it would be great just because we don't really have that. I can point, you can point. We both know the random examples. You know, there was that guy, what is it, Joel Rosenberg, who wrote about Israeli mercenaries on a planet called Masada, which. <laughs> terrible there was that one story that robert silverberg did about a rabbi on mars or you know you can point to those philip k dick wrote about a kibbutz on mars at some point but they're so isolated i'd love to see someone just step in but the other thing is not many people actually write science fiction people write fantasy and like i said we are seeing jewish fantasy but i'd love to see just some people give science fiction a try you know which again it kind of needs to start with short stories because that's really where it is and I have no idea what it would look like. Because don't forget, the, the concept of being Jewish is also incredibly different between places. I've lived in England for 20 years, and I still don't really understand British Jews. It's a very different way, you know, it's a very quiet way of being Jewish. Whereas if you're an American, American Jews are a completely different breed. And again, if you look at Israelis, they're kind of the Jews everyone hates. <laughs> they're the loud and brash and irritating, you know, the guys with the accent. And, you know, one of my favorite experiences of all time, I think, was I lived in Laos in Southeast Asia for a couple of years. 
And this guy tracked me down at some point. He was like, you're Jewish, right? He's like, do you want to come over? I think it was Passover or Hanukkah. He decided to have like a celebration. And this guy was Jewish from, I think his mom converted to Judaism, which is unusual in itself that anyone converts to Judaism. And he was married to a Thai woman and he had children and he wanted them to know a little bit about his culture, where he comes from. So he kind of rounded up whatever Jews he could find in Laos. And we went to this cedar when there was a lot of not very kosher food, I should say. And it was lovely because you had all these children there and the children would be half Jewish, half Thai, half Jewish, half Lao, half Jewish, half Tibetan. And it was that wealth of, we've got Ethiopian Jews. And in fact, across Africa, you get so many Jewish tribes that we don't really acknowledge. And, you know, the state of Israel doesn't want to acknowledge. They don't want them to come over. But there are genuine Jewish tribes all across Africa. Part of the idea that Jews are everywhere. And I think so there's so many different perspectives. I think whoever steps in and writes this stuff is going to be nothing like what I do. And I think that's what's going to be so exciting about it. I'd love to read it. I'm excited to read it too. And I recommend your work to all of our listeners. Really, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you to Lodi Pilar. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Health Institute. It was produced this week by me and edited by Alex Dillon, with music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after each episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Health Institute, please visit us online at shalomhealth.org. If you want to know what you think about the show, can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhuntman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week again. Thanks for listening.